2: Good morning, I'm Nathan Hager.
3: And I'm Karen Moscow. Here are the stories we're following today.
2: We begin with an appeal to the American people from President Biden as the wars in Israel and Ukraine rage on. The president used a rare primetime address from the Oval Office to make the case that both conflicts represent parallel fights for democracy.
4: I know these conflicts can seem far away. And it's natural to ask, why does this matter to America? So let me share with you why making sure Israel and Ukraine succeed is vital for America's national security. You know, history has taught us that when terrorists don't pay a price for their terror, when dictators don't pay a price for their aggression, they cause more chaos and death and more destruction. They keep going, and the cost and the threats to America and the world keep rising.
2: In his roughly 15-minute speech, President Biden argued that supporting Ukraine and Israel is vital for America's national security. The White House now plans a formal request to Congress for about $100 billion in resources for both countries, along with Taiwan and the southern U.S. border.
3: Well, Nathan, the president's speech comes as tensions heighten in the Middle East, and Bloomberg's Oliver Crook is covering the war from Tel Aviv. And
5: as fears of escalation and spillover mount, we should also say Hamas has called for a day of rage today across the Islamic world, where last time they called for it, we saw protesters take to the street, really raising the temperatures, also raising the temperatures, the United States saying that they're seeing more drone attacks in their installations in Iraq and Syria, and that they've also intercepted a fire from Yemen headed towards Israel. There is the small matter of a huge country that sits between Yemen and Israel. It's called Saudi Arabia, with huge geopolitical
3: influence. And Bloomberg's Oliver Crook says the death toll continues to mount. More than 1,400 people in Israel have been killed. The Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry says more than 3,700 Palestinians have also been killed.
2: And Karen, we'll have much more on the war ahead, but we now turn our attention back here to the U.S., where a search for a Speaker of the House is still underway. Round three for Jim Jordan's quest, hold the gavel, is
4: scheduled for this morning, and Bloomberg's Ed Baxter has the story. More twists and turns to even get to this space. Jordan has come off as support of an interim speaker after very heated response from his caucus, so... I'm still running for speaker, and I plan to go to the floor
5: uh, and get the votes and win this race, but I want to go talk with a, a few of my colleagues. Particularly, I want to talk with the 20 individuals who voted against me.
4: Whether that will land him what he needs is a big question as it hangs in the wind and delays action on aid for Israel or Ukraine. Ed Baxter, Bloomberg Radio.
3: All right, Ed, thank you. We turn to the markets now. Jay Powell signaling the Fed will stay on pat at its November meeting. After speaking at the Economic Club of New York, the Fed chair told Bloomberg's David Weston the economy is doing a good job of handling tighter monetary policy.
6: So the, the evidence of your eyes is that the economy is, is handling much higher rates, at least for now, without difficulty. So notionally, that, that might tell you that, that the neutral rate has risen, or it may just tell you that we haven't had rates high enough for long enough. We have models for everything, we have formulas for everything. Ultimately, as a practitioner, mm-hmm. we have to, you know, be focused on what the economy is telling us, even taking lags into account. What's it telling us? Does, does it feel like policy is too tight right now? I would have to say no. I think the evidence is not that a policy is too tight right now.
3: And the Fed chief also said a recent run-up in long-term Treasury yields, if they persist, could lessen the need for further hikes at the margin. For the full conversation with Fed Chair Jay Powell, head over to our Bloomberg Talks podcast feed, available anywhere you get your podcasts.
2: Well, Karen, there was plenty of reaction to Powell's remarks. Yields on two-year Treasuries declined. Ten-year yields paired an increase that pushed them near the 5% mark. Former New York Fed President Bill Dudley says Powell was pretty optimistic about the economy. Basically, you got the impression that he's pretty comfortable with the level of rates and the fact that the economy is a little stronger than expected. Well, that's a a nice problem to have. Mm -hmm. And the fact that bond yields are a little higher, well, that's actually maybe going to help deal with the fact that growth is a little bit stronger than expected. He also implied that he expected growth to slow in the fourth quarter going into next year. So I think the Fed's on hold until they see whether the economy slows as much as they anticipate or not. Former New York Fed President Bill Dudley is now a Bloomberg opinion columnist.
3: Well, many on Wall Street think rate hikes are over. Nathan, in fact, in our latest Bloomberg monthly survey, economists think the Fed is done raising rates, but they also anticipate a slower pace of rate cuts next year. The economists are also raising their growth projections and reducing their odds of a recession.
2: And there's also some optimism on the auto strike this morning, Karen. A top union negotiator says General Motors and the United Auto Workers are moving toward a tentative agreement that would put an end to a major strike that has dragged on for more than a month. GM, along with rivals Ford, Ford and Stellantis have been trying to cut a deal to end a walkout that started September 15th. A GM spokesperson declined to comment.
3: Another corporate news, Nathan. More job cuts may be on the way at UBS. The Financial News is reporting the Swiss bank is poised to target about 10 percent of its support staff at Credit Suisse. UBS is taking over its longtime Swiss rival in a government-orchestrated deal and pairing a combined workforce that swelled to about 120,000.
2: Now, let's get you updated on the Sam Bankman-Fried trial, Karen. The third week ended with the testimony of FTX former general counsel, Can Sun, who told the court he resigned after finding a massive hole in FTX's balance sheet. The trial will now take a week-long break. It's due to resume October
3: 26th. All right, Nathan, thanks. It's time now for a look at some of the other stories making news around the world. For that, we're joined by Bloomberg's John Tucker. John, good morning.
7: And Karen, the Pentagon is reaffirming that Israel was not behind that deadly rocket strike on a hospital in Gaza this week. Brigadier General Pat Ryder says the U.S. is using its own information
8: to make the determination... It is our assessment that Israel was not responsible for that, that explosion. Um, we're continuing to assess that initial indications are that this was from an errant rocket um, that was launched by the palestinian islamic jihad hundreds were killed in the attack the president of new
7: york-based private equity giant blackstone john gray says he remains committed to funding low income students and cancer research at the university of pennsylvania while acknowledging concerns over anti-semitic speech on campus
6: Uh, some of my colleagues in the financial field and more broadly have raised some really legitimate concerns about hate speech masquerading as free speech in the context of anti Semitism on college campuses at Penn and other
7: places. Well, Penn has been the center of controversy and a high profile alum demanded that the president and board chair step down. A Maryland Circuit Court judge was fatally shot in the driveway of his home last night. Circuit court judge Andrew Wilkinson was found with the parent gunshot wounds around 8 p.m. He was taken from his home in Hagerstown to the Meredith Medical Center where he died of his injuries. The sheriff's office investigating the fatal shooting. That army private who fled to North Korea before being returned home to the U.S. last month has now been detained by the U.S. military and is facing charges including desertion and possessing sexual images of a child. The eight counts against private Travis King are detailed in a charging document. CVS pulling some of the most common decongestants off the store shelves. An advisory panel at the FDA declared that the common ingredient in cold medicines, phenylephrine, does not work. It's supposed to be the decongestant and cold medications. It's in some of the most known and widely used cold medications. Global News, 24 hours a day, wherever you want it, with Bloomberg News Now. I'm John Tucker, and this is Bloomberg. Karen.
3: All right, John, thank you. Well, we do bring you news throughout the day here on Bloomberg Radio, but now, as John said, you can get the latest news on demand whenever you want it. Subscribe to Bloomberg News Now to get the latest headlines at the click of a button. Get informed on your schedule. You can listen and subscribe to bloomberg news now on the bloomberg business app bloomberg.com plus apple spotify and anywhere else you get your podcasts it is time now for the bloomberg sports update and here's john stash hour john
8: Karen, Thursday night football, the kickoff week seven. The Jaguars in New Orleans to face the Saints. Jacksonville jumped in front 24-9. Travis Etienne scored twice. The Jags had a pick six. Back came the Saints to tie the game. Jacksonville ball, just over three minutes left. Shotgun, empty backfield for Trevor. Three right, two left, he drops. Looks, checks it down underneath. That's a crossing route
4: to Christian Kirk. 30, 25, 20, 15, 10. Christian Kirk to the ball.
8: Jacksonville! A crossing route to Christian Kirk. Jags Radio had it and they beat the Saints 31-24. to Jacksonville's now won four games in a row at 5-2. It's their best start since 2007. Jimmy Garoppolo's not going to play for the Raiders Sunday against Chicago. He's got a back injury and the Bears are expected to be without Justin Fields. Not knowing if the Raiders will go with the veteran Brian Hoyer or the rookie Aiden O'Connell. Sean Watson may play Sunday for Cleveland. He missed last week's game with a shoulder injury. Baseball playoffs, the Arizona Diamondbacks top the Phillies 2-1 on a Ketel Marte hit. Bottom of the ninth inning is her third hit of the game as the D-backs take a lead in the series for the first time, but the Phillies are still up. Two games to one with Game 4 tonight in Phoenix. All Astros in Texas taking Game 4 10-3. Jose Abreu had a big three-run homer. Chaz McCormick a two-run shot for Jose Altuve. Three hits, 3 runs score. That series is now tied at two. Heading into today's Game 5, Justin Verlander against Jordan Montgomery. John Stash, our Bloomberg Sports.
0: You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
7: Good morning. I'm Nathan Hager. On day
2: 14 of war between Israel and Hamas, there are new concerns about a wider conflict with U.S. bases in Iraq and Syria experiencing attacks, Iran-backed groups in Yemen trying to fire missiles at Israel, all as President Biden defends continued U.S. support for Israel and Ukraine in a direct appeal to the American people.
4: Hamas and Putin represent different threats, but they share this in common. They both want to completely annihilate a neighboring democracy, completely annihilated.
2: President Biden speaking there in a rare Oval Office address this morning. We're joined by a team of reporters, Bloomberg's news director for Europe, the Middle East and Africa. Rosalind Matheson is with us, along with Bloomberg's Oliver Crook in Tel Aviv. Good morning to you both. I want to start with you, Oliver, just to get the latest on what's been happening overnight in the war between Israel and Hamas.
5: So some of the context we should give for Friday today is another day of rage that has been called for uh, by Hamas. So this is sort of protests across the Islamic world is what they called for. Last week we saw this, you know, thousands took to the streets. And it comes as the IDF continues to strike targets in Gaza, continues to strike targets in Lebanon. It, it has not sort of escalated dramatically on the border of Lebanon, but there are still skirmishes there. There are more civilians evacuating from the north. And as you mentioned, the U.S. saying that seeing some of their installations coming under more attack in Iraq and Syria, um, and also these missiles, apparently intercepted by the U.S. uh, Navy, fired from Yemen. And there's the small matter of a big country of huge influence in the region that sits between Yemen and Israel, and that is Saudi Arabia. And that'll push us forward to a summit that we understand will be held tomorrow in Egypt, where, again, there's a lot of information on this flying around. And according to people familiar that we have, that the Crown Prince will be at that meeting, along with President Erdogan, the King of Jordan, and some representative from Western and European countries as well, to discuss uh, peace in Cairo.
2: has been a real difficulty uh, getting uh, the Arab world more involved in what's happening here to try to keep this conflict contained. Rosalind Matheson, what's your assessment of how diplomacy is going at this point?
9: Well, certainly, we do know there's a lot of conversation going on, as Oliver was just pointing out, although how you have a peace summit without Israel is slightly tricky, um, given they're, they're a key player in, in the conflict, obviously with Hamas. we do know that there is an endless parade of officials from Europe and elsewhere into the region. Uh, we do know that, it, that uh, also the Arab worlds talking to each other. A very important thing to note this morning is that we're hearing uh, that the leaders of Saudi Arabia and the UAE are holding a meeting. That's their first public meeting that we know of in three years in Riyadh. And that's a very significant move because that shows perhaps a desire on the part of these key power brokers in the region to work together to limit the possibility of contagion from this conflict. Uh, we do know that some of these states are under pressure from their own people who are angry what they see is the treatment of people inside Gaza. But equally, the leaders of these countries have been working delicately and carefully towards sort of improving ties with Israel and, and certainly sort of keeping a greater calm across the region, promoting economic and trade, uh, you know, their economies and trade and investment. So they've got an interest in doing that. So that's one meeting that's happening this morning. It's very much one we should pay attention to.
2: As we await the comments from Arab leaders, Ali, we did hear from President Biden last night from the Oval Office defending continued U.S. support for Israel as well as Ukraine and other uh, global conflict points around the world. How is that message from the president being received in Israel?
5: I mean, I think it's received positively in Israel. He echoed many of the things that he said when he was here in Tel Aviv just a few days ago. But I think that the tougher sell and the sell that is more important for Israelis is, how is this going to go down with the American people? And this is a question that Biden asked openly, why should the Americans, why does this matter to the American people? And this is where he was saying that basically terrorism and dictatorship here, talking about Hamas and Putin, need to pay the price. Otherwise, there will be more death, more destruction, and it is in the national security interests of the United States. he does this appeal to the uh, people of the United States because he's going to ask for a lot of money. We understand $60 billion of that is for Ukraine, and $14 billion is for Israeli defense, but also another ten for humanitarian efforts, including Gaza. And again, he warned uh, Israel in this uh, speech, as he's done repeatedly, evoking 9-11, saying the U.S. sought revenge, they got, re- uh, they got uh, justice, but they should not be blinded by rage because they made mistakes.
2: What is the risk that this spills over more widely?
9: Well, that really depends on on a ground war, uh, if or when it starts. It certainly seems that is Israel's intent still to go into Gaza and what that looks like. Uh, we do know that there's been some discussion, including from the US, about perhaps helping frame that. Um, would it be a more targeted incursion than a full-scale war? And a lot will depend on that, quite frankly. Um, but also the unknowns of, of Iran and does Iran just say we, can, we can't sit by, we need to do something. Um, the risk has to be high and that's why you're seeing that level of diplomacy in the region to try and avert it.
2: Rosalind Matheson and Oliver Crook of Bloomberg News team coverage as the war between Israel and Hamas extends into day 14. Ali, Raz, thanks to you both for being with us this morning. Now we want to turn from geopolitics to the U.S. economy. We did hear from Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell at the Economic Club of New York giving a speech followed by a conversation with Bloomberg's David
10: Weston. Let's go to part of that discussion now. Are you surprised at how resilient the United States economy is across the board? It seems like a very strong economy, despite all you've done to try to slow it down.
6: Yes, so uh, we certainly have a very uh, uh, resilient economy on our hands. We've got uh, the economy growing strongly. If you think back a year, many forecasts called for the U.S. economy, economy to be in recession this year. Not only has that not happened, growth is now running for this year. Above its longer-run trend, so that's been a surprise, driven largely by uh, consumer spending, driven by a very strong job market with uh, people getting jobs with high first-time nominal wages, and then as inflation has come down, real wages, which is spurring spending, and we've also had inflation coming down. So, you know, uh, that's it. It really is a story of much stronger demand. There may also be there may be some ways in which the economy is. Um, less affected by interest rates. Uh, It's hard to know precisely, but for example, companies, many companies, any company with bond market access will have termed out its debt, right? And therefore may not be feeling the effects of higher rates. The same may be true of homeowners who have a a long-term fixed rate, low rate mortgage, who then are therefore not, because it's not an adjustable rate or a higher rate, they're not not feeling that increase in rates. So the, the economy may be somewhat less uh, susceptible to the effects of rate increases. On the other hand, if you look at um, look at interest-sensitive spending, these are very much the the, the, um, the places where we see we, where we expect to see and do see effects. So, for example, in um, in housing or in you know in the housing sector has been sector has been very affected by higher rates as purchases of, of uh, durable goods. If you look at surveys, people will not say that it's a good time to buy a car or a house. Quite the contrary. So we see policy working through its usual channels. It may just be that rates haven't been high enough for long enough, and and again, it's all happening in a context of
10: of very strong demand. We've heard other people speculate that the terming out of debt, as you say, both corporate debt and household debt may diminish the effectiveness of rate hikes. Do you have a view on whether that's true? And if it is true, what does it say about monetary policy? Does it mean you have to go farther in the rate hikes, or do you just not have the power to affect it? So no,
6: I, I don't think that, that there's a, um, a fundamental shift in the way that interest rates affect the economy. There may be some differences in this cycle because of what I mentioned. Um, I, as I mentioned, you, we are seeing those, the effects where we expect to see them, which is interest-sensitive spending and also asset prices to some extent, uh, and the exchange rate, which you're also seeing a uh, strong exchange rate, which is, which is disinflationary. So I don't think there's a, a fundamental change in the way monetary policy affects the economy. And again, it goes back to just very strong demand. We take the economy as it is. We take fiscal policy and the economy and all the things we don't control, they come to us and we conduct policy always to achieve maximum employment and stable prices. So we just t- take what comes. The fact that we have a strong, growing economy, a strong, growing labor market, and uh, you know, inflation coming down. These are the elements that we want to, to see that to achieve the, the outcome we want. It may take more time, but ultimately, uh, those are, that's, this is the kind of thing you would want to
10: see along the path to getting through this without a big increase in unemployment. How much effect thus far has the Fed had? Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we all have memorized now long and variable lags. How long and how variable and where are you in that process? Are you at the 25% point the 50% in terms of seeing it in the effect in the real economy? So there's there's no
6: precision in the uh, in in our understanding of of how long lags are Um, One thing that has changed in the modern era is that markets now uh, Over the course of the last 30 years central banks have decided instead of being secretive to be very transparent and what that has meant is that markets move actually well in anticipation well before our policy moves so the transmission from policy moves to to financial conditions actually happens before the moves now whereas that was not the case 50 years ago when milton friedman you know coined the phrase long and variable legs so but now you have financial conditions changing and the question is how does it affect the economy the standard channels are uh asset prices, interest-sensitive spending in the exchange rate, for example, and we, again, we do see that happening just not as fast as we would like, and I would attribute some of that to just stronger demand. You know, household savings were, were turned out to be higher.
10: Household spending has been stronger, and that's by far the largest part of the economy. In order to conduct monetary policy effectively, do you need at least a, hypo- a hypothesis about how much has already hit the economy? Because it's hard to know how much more you need to do if you don't know how far you've come. So on, on lags,
6: I think if you think back, it's been a year now since, since the last 75 basis point hike we did. It was the November meeting in 2022. The first one was in June, so it's more than a year. So we should be seeing the effects. By the way, they don't all just arrive on one day. They, they arrive and then they're thought to peak and then to diminish. So there's a lot of uncertainty around lags. Um, and one of the reasons why we have slowed down significantly this year is to give monetary policy time to work. The truth is, though, you can find academic support for different, different speeds of, and, and duration of lag. So we have to use our eyes and a little bit of risk management and, and patience in slowing down the pace to make sure that we are seeing the full effects. And I think, again, that's, that's part of why we've slowed down this year. We've, you know, we, were, we went very quickly in 2022 to catch up to where we need to be, and now we're moving
10: carefully with these decisions. Uh, so, w- when you spoke back in August of 2020 and sort of laid out the revisions to the framework, as it were, uh, you said that in terms of anticipated growth, the sort of consensus had gone from something like 2.5 to 1.8 percent, I think, were the numbers you laid out in that. Where are you now? Where's the Fed? Where are you and what you think basically the long-run growth is?
6: Long-run potential growth
10: um, is not
6: something that moves around a lot over time, but I would, my, my own guess is it's around 2 percent. I think that the the standard mainstream view would be a little bit below 2%, but I would just say 2% real growth uh, over time and you know what what causes growth is you know growth in hours worked plus growth in productivity growth in hours worked is, is a function of population growth in the long run and also labor force participation many things affect productivity but if you if you drop in reasonable standard longer term estimates of hours worked growth and productivity which is just output per hour Productivity growth, you get something around two percent, and that's that's higher than most other advanced economies.
10: As you look at it, uh, do you see historical precedents for having a growing economy with high rates over a long period of time? I mean, as you look back, I mean, is it like the late '90s, for example? What do you, what, what analogies do you draw as you try to determine what this might be doing to the economy over the longer term? So that that's really a question about what the what the
6: what the Level of rates will be going for what the neutral level will be and I think it's it's very hard to know confidently What the answer to that will be in five years? Some of the reasons why rates were low for the last 25 years were just uh, the aging of the global population and globalization and you know, so lots of savings and relatively uh, with an aging population Savings greater than investment so rates are lower and productivity was low so all of those led to low interest rates so what has changed with the pandemic you might see less effects from globalization certainly demographics the, the aging of the global population has not changed um, i mean this is a discussion we're having on an ongoing basis it doesn't really affect current policy but where will rates settle out what will be at the normal rate so if if the if a typical fed tightening cycle would leave you at 5 or 6%, and, and this is, this is in the, before the pandemic and before this, the low inflation period, you would have had, had uh, Fed rates in 4 or 5% or even higher frequently. Are we going back to that? I really don't know. I wouldn't want to speculate. I mean, my guess is it'll be somewhere in the middle, but I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think we can say this now. Uh, the effective lower bound is not an issue. You know, we were, we were very concerned about that. Right now, we're very far from the effective lower bound, and the economy's handling it just fine. But that's, you know, that's because we're at a time of of really elevated demand uh, coming out of the pandemic as we reopened with fiscal stimulus and monetary stimulus. We have very strong demand in the United States. Hard to know what what the economy will want in the way of interest rates when, when five years from now when all of the effects of the pandemic are behind us.